One of the most moving passages in Scripture is the one we're going to deal with this morning. We see the greatest emotion coming out of our Savior. On one hand, we see the fullness of His deity. But on the other hand, we see the most full representation of His humanity. And in the same passage, we see something that marks the Christian life and marks the world around us. Weeping. We weep and mourn for many different things. You weep and mourn every time you're reminded of sin. And weeping, just like pain, those are defense mechanisms to remind us that something is not right. Something needs to be changed. For those apart from Christ, there is no hope beyond weeping. And the weeping will continue forever and ever. But what is unique to the believer is that weeping through Christ turns into raising. Those who mourn are comforted. Those who cry are made joyful. Those who are dead are given new life and cause for celebration. So this is the gospel. That bad news comes first. But there is good news as the answer. And those who weep have hope because they are raised to new life in Christ. Each week I search for an introduction and you know, how do we begin what we're going to talk about today. And providentially has happened many times. Last week we gave an update on uh, one of the missionary organizations that we support and one of my mentors who trains underground church leaders in the most persecuted countries around the world. Uh, West Africa and the underground church in China. He just got back last week and he sent me an email on how great it went and how they partnered with one of the, the, the most prominent underground church pastors over there, Pastor Wang Yi. And he sent me this great update. And then as we're locking up the church last week, we're walking outside, there's about a handful of us left, and I get this heartbreaking email. Pastor Wang Yi was arrested. Not only him, but all of the elders of the church except for one, and at least a hundred other members. The Chinese government broke into their houses and broke into their their church building, destroyed everything, took parents away from children, and last I heard, they're still in prison for their faith, for proclaiming Jesus Christ. And if anyone should have reason to weep, it is these brothers and sisters But this man, who has become a new hero of mine, in great foresight, wrote a letter. If I get arrested, and if I am in jail for two days or longer, publish this letter. And the letter is powerful. I'm going to send the entire letter out tomorrow. Uh, But I want to read excerpts of it. I've kind of condensed it myself. It would take a while to read the entire thing. A lot of it is addressed to the Chinese government. And it's interesting the approach he takes. He takes a very biblical approach. But he takes a very humble approach as well. And he assures them, I'm not trying to overthrow your system. I don't care about your governmental system. I care about people being transformed by the gospel. And this is powerful. If I go to jail, publish this letter. And it's going to be on the screen. I didn't change any of his wording. I just condensed it for us. He calls it my declaration of faithful disobedience. And this this will introduce us to weeping and rising. So he says this, 
on the basis of the teachings of the Bible and the mission of the gospel, I respect the authorities God has established in China. For God deposes kings and raises up kings. This is why I submit to the historical and institutional arrangements of God in China. As a pastor of a Christian church, I have my own understanding and views based on the Bible about what righteous order and good government is. At the same time, I am filled with anger and disgust at the persecution of the church by this communist regime, at the wickedness of their depriving people of the freedoms of religion and of conscience. But changing social and political institution is not the mission I have been called to. And it is not the goal for which God has given his gospel or given his people the gospel. For all hideous realities, unrighteous politics, and arbitrary laws manifest the cross of Jesus Christ, the only means by which every Chinese person must be saved. They also manifest the fact that true hope and a perfect society will never be found in the transformation of any earthly institution or culture, but only in our sins being freely forgiven by Christ and in the hope of eternal life. As a pastor, my firm belief in the gospel, my teaching, and my rebuking of all evil proceeds from Christ's command in the gospel and from the unfathomable love of that glorious king. Every man's life is extremely short, and God fervently commands the church to lead and call any man to repentance who is willing to repent. Christ is eager and willing to forgive all those who turn from their sins. This is the goal of all the efforts of the church in China, to testify to the world about Christ, to testify to the middle kingdom about the kingdom of heaven, to testify to earth, momentary lives about heavenly, eternal life. This is also the pastoral calling I have received. For this reason, I accept and respect the fact that the communist regime has been allowed by God to rule temporarily. As the Lord's servant John Calvin said, wicked rulers are the judgment of God on a wicked people. The goal being to urge God's people to repent and turn again toward him. For this reason, I am joyfully willing to submit myself to their enforcement of the law as though submitting to the discipline and training of the Lord. My Savior Christ also requires me to joyfully bear all costs for disobeying wicked laws. If God decides to use the persecution of this communist regime against the church to help more Chinese people to despair in their futures, to lead them through a wilderness of spiritual disillusionment, and through this to make them know Jesus, if through this he continues disciplining and building up his church, then I am joyfully willing to submit to God's plans, for his plans are always benevolent and good. If I am in prison for a long time or a short time, I hope God uses me by means of first losing my personal freedom, to tell those who have deprived me of my personal freedom that there is an authority higher than their authority, and that there is a freedom they cannot restrain, a freedom that fills the church of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ, regardless of what crime the government charges me with. I will serve my sentence, but I will not serve the law. I will be executed, but I will not plead guilty. Those who lock me up will one day be locked up by angels. 
Those who interrogate me will finally be questioned and judged by Christ. When I think of this, the Lord fills me with a natural compassion and grief toward those who are attempting to and actively imprisoning me. Pray that the Lord would use me, that he would grant me patience and wisdom that I might take the gospel to them. Separate me from my wife and children, ruin my reputation, destroy my life and my family. The authorities are capable of doing all these things. However, no one in this world can force me to renounce my faith. No one can make me change my life, and no one can raise me from the dead. And so, respectable officers, stop committing evil. This is not for my benefit, but rather for yours and your children's. I plead earnestly with you to stay your hands. For why should you be willing to pay the price of eternal damnation in hell for the sake of a lowly sinner such as I? Jesus is the Christ, son of the eternal living God. He died for sinners and rose to life for us. He is my king and the king of the whole earth yesterday, today, and forever. I am his servant, and I am in prison because of this. I will resist in meekness those who resist God, and I will joyfully violate all laws that violate God's laws. Let's pray. How do I follow that up, Lord? Lord, I am honored to be called his brother. I am honored to be called by your name. And I just pray that in times of trial and persecution, I would be half as bold as he is, half as humble as he is, half as faithful as he is. And it is only by your rising him to life that he can speak that way. Lord, thank you for the work that you've done in his life. Thank you for the work that you are doing in persecuted brothers and sisters across the globe. Thank you for the weeping that turns into gospel proclamation. And I pray that this letter will spread around China, will spread around the world. And people will know the hope that we have in you is astounding. face of cruel persecution. Lord, as we open your word this morning, may it come alive to us. May the power that rose you from the grave and rose those who trust in you from the grave continue its purposes. Continue to raise to new life those who are dead. Let the gospel ring out and those who know the gospel be emboldened to stand firm in our faith, to proclaim loudly the name of Jesus Christ and to boldly stand in humble disobedience to everything that comes against the cross of Christ. Lord, please guide our hearts and our minds and our actions. Conform us to the image of Christ that we may honor you in everything we do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
So let's read our text today in John chapter 11, starting in verse 28. So this is right after Martha gave this declaration to Jesus. She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into this world. And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here, and he is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. And when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was greatly moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have they laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of a blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of a dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believe you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I say this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who died came out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is powerful. Let's walk back through this together. So the first thing I want you to notice here, we've looked at this all throughout chapter 11 of John. This is very curious to us, but Jesus delays his coming. He loves Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They send a messenger, Jesus, come quickly. The one you love is dying. Jesus waits two days. But an interesting thing happens here. Because during this two days, and probably four, maybe five days, Mary, Martha, and all these Jews have more time to contemplate and to consider Jesus. Mary and Martha say the exact same thing. This conversation must have went on. If Jesus comes in time, he will be raised. The Jews obviously have an idea about Jesus. They knew that he opened the eyes of a blind man. Couldn't he help his sick friend? As they're stirring, Jesus is waiting for the opportune time to give them this glorious culmination of his power before their eyes. So we begin in verse 28. When she had said this, the declaration that Martha just made, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private. Now we talked about last week that the morning scene, uh, morning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, the the, uh, weeping and the lamenting that happens in a death lasts for seven days, and it's very public and it's very loud. They're actually professional mourners. 
You would pay people to come and, and, and cry, and there'd, there'd be this big procession that go down the middle of the street. And so there's a lot of commotion going on, a lot of weeping and wailing, a lot of screaming. Martha pulls her sister aside quietly. The teacher is calling for you. I don't know why she did it quietly, but I can assume that she didn't want all the distractions and the professional mourners and didn't want a big scene because Jesus asked for her specifically. The teacher is here and calling for you. This word teacher, rabbi. In those days, rabbis only taught and mostly spoke to men. So as a teacher, Jesus is breaking all conventional norms here. And this, this tie together of the teacher calling a woman would not be lost on their culture. He's not just some cold academic who's passing on facts. He's someone who actually cares to know and teach those who would learn. So when she hears it, she rose quickly and went to him. I love what Arthur Pink says. He says, knowing that he was calling her lent wings to her feet. As we saw last week, Mary just stayed on the floor and wept. But Jesus is here, and she rises quickly. So he goes on. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. Again, speculating here, but I'm pretty certain that Jesus is staying outside of this whole house of mourning, this, this whole big, this whole big uh, thing that's going on here. Speaks to Martha, calls for Mary, calls to those he loves, and speaks to them directly because he knows them. Jesus is not one for the show and, 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 and all this. Everything he does is deliberate and intentional. But of course, these professional mourners, they have a job to do. So Mary gets up and runs. They're probably a little nosy as well. Let's see where she's going. We go on. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Mary's pretty quick. She beats them there. Before they could, they could come, she says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Again, you hear the same pain in her voice that you heard in Martha's. Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. And we see the similarities in the sisters. They both have the same heartbreak. But we also see the consistency in their personalities. We talked about their personalities last week. Martha, right away, she, she, she jumps up quickly and she engages with Jesus. She, she, she has to ask questions. She has to dig deeper. Mary sits and waits like she sat at his feet and listened. Their personalities are consistent even in the way they respond to Jesus coming. And what does she do? She came to where Jesus was, and she fell at his feet. This is a consistent posture for Mary. Martha is on her feet, looking Jesus eye to eye, asking questions, and Mary is on her knees, just falling at the feet of her Lord because of her humility and reverence before him. But both believe that he can heal the sick. But bringing someone up from the grave is a whole new territory, even for two women who have faith in Christ. And they say the same thing, yet their approach is so different. But what I love here is that Jesus receives them both. Jesus doesn't scold one and applaud the other. 
Jesus doesn't, doesn't correct one because he prefers the other. He engages Martha, how he's created her. He engages Mary, how he's created her. And isn't this a beautiful reminder that he knows us? He engages us how he's made us. To the hasty, he's, he's, he's patient. To the humble, he's, he's gracious. To the brash and the bashful, bashful, he receives and comforts them both. I love this picture of the Lord of how he knows them. You know, as George mentioned earlier, many of you think that you're not worthy or you're not, you cannot be loved because you're different than someone else. Many of you think that you'd be more acceptable to God if you were like someone else. God did not make a mistake when he made you. God did not make a mistake when he made you. We tend to stick to that passage in Luke 10 where Mary is elevated and Martha is kind of scolded. But God made each of them. Jesus knew each of them. They matured differently, but he cared for them both and in the way that he designed them. And what I love about the transformation in Christ is when he transforms us, when he gives us new birth, when he gives us his spirit, he doesn't change our personality, he redeems it. We are still the same people, but with redeemed personalities. So you are still you, but a better version of you. This is the beauty of the church. This is the beauty of God's people. We're not robots. We don't have to all think and act and feel and do the same. But our identity is now the same. Even though how we work out of that may be different. Meditate on that. And the next time you compare yourself to someone else, God made a mistake when he made you, or you'd be better off if you were someone else. Verse 33 when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. I'll be honest, this is one of the hardest verses to translate so far in the Gospel of John. A lot of times what happens when you translate out of an ancient language that is now dead, that is no longer being used, you have these words that have, have meaning in that culture that's kind of hard to make a one-to-one equivalent to ours. So I want to talk about a couple words here. Weeping is repeated twice. We're going to do, talk more about weeping in just a moment. That's, that's pretty clear. We're going to contrast that to Jesus' weeping versus the weeping of, of the mourners. But this, this first term here that the ESV translates, deeply moved. This is really hard to translate. It's a guttural groaning. This actually is a term that's applied to the snort of a horse. That, you know, I'm not going to do it, but that, that, that whole thing that, that the horse does, this something that is just visceral inside you that kind of comes out it's actually something that is attributed to indignation it is great emotion even anger it is a response to something that is unfavorable and it's appropriate to say that jesus was deeply moved but how deep that it actually came out physically there was a physical response it was something internal that came out of him and the second term here that is translated greatly troubled. 
This is an, an agitating. This is to stir up. This is a trembling. These are two words that are internal conditions that manifest themselves physically. Jesus is physically responding. He is shaking. He's agitated at the weeping that he sees. He is deeply moved in his spirit. This is a lowercase s. As a man, he is looking at the result of sin. He is looking at death and the effects that it has on those he loves. And as a man, he is overcome. We don't know exactly how to translate these words, but what we do know is the weeping that is mentioned twice is what drives both of these terms. Weeping like pain is that tool that tells us something is wrong, something's not right here. Jesus recognizes something is not right. Things aren't supposed to be this way. But as we're going to see, tears water gospel soil. Tears are what makes beautiful things come out of dead things. And death is a reminder that something is not right in this life. As we're going to see in just a moment, Jesus is piece by piece restoring what is not right. One of them is this man that he loves dying before his time. But many times we look at this Jesus in this moment of vulnerability, and as we do, especially men, we like to see vulnerability as weakness. This is not weakness. I love what B.B. Warfield says about this. It gives us a different perspective, and I, I think he's on to this. He's a 19th century Princeton theologian. But he shows Christ as an active, vigilant, not passive or weak. Look at what he says. It is death that is the object of his wrath. And behind death, him who has the power of death, and whom he has come into the world to destroy. Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but this is incidental. His soul is filled with rage, and he advances to the tomb, in Calvin's words again, as a champion who prepares for conflict. The rising of Lazarus thus becomes not an isolated marvel, but as indeed it is presented through the whole of the narrative, a decisive instance, an open symbol of Jesus' conquest of death and hell. What John does for us in this particular statement is to uncover to us the heart of Jesus as he wins for us our salvation. Not in cold unconcern, but in flaming wrath against the foe, Jesus smites on our behalf. When you think about what Christ has done for you, he smites, he beats, he wins death on our behalf. I hate weak Jesus. I hate the culture that wants to make our Savior into this lowly man who has no power. This is the creator of the universe, the king of kings and lord of lords. Just because he walks as a servant, don't mistake him. He is a conquering king. He is a roaring lion. And as he prepares to raise Lazarus from the dead, it should make us look to the cross. Because that lion is going to defeat Satan and hell. And the cross is the death blow. And the end is just inevitable. 
Now we see where Jesus' heart is, and we get to the shortest verse in the Bible, and maybe one of the most profound. He sees the effect of sin, the result of death, the fall on those he loves, and he weeps for it. Jesus wept. And this is a different word than what's used before. The weeping that was applied to the Jews is a wailing, a screaming, and an external show. This verb, it's the only time this is used in the New Testament. This is a different weeping. This is true heartfelt sympathy. This is tears shed out of a broken heart and grief. Jesus is not weeping because he has no hope. This is a genuine sorrow for what he sees. This is why he came down to earth. Because death has taken over my creation. Death is affecting my people and it breaks my heart. It is sin that breaks Jesus' heart because death is the result of sin. Everything we see that causes us to weep is a result of sin. May it remind us of our sinful nature and the only one who can conquer sin and death. And this should point us to he is the one who bears our griefs and carries our sorrows. We read that in Isaiah 53. But now it gives us a picture of it. He bears our grief. He carries our sorrows. He literally took it upon himself. He took our sin and God's wrath, and this is the precursor to it. This is the beginning of him bearing the weight of our sin. He bore it on his heart before he bore it on his hands. And Jesus has to die the most painful and heartbreaking death ever so that death and sorrow can be defeated forever. He took all the sins of all his people and the wrath of God upon himself to set in motion the new creation and the reconciliation of all things. Jesus raising raising Lazarus to death is a recreation symbol. I can take what is dead. I can take what has been broken and affected by sin. I can take what breaks your heart and I can make it new. And no one else has claim to that but me. So of course, the Jews are mixed in their reactions to this. So the Jews say, see how he loved him. No one doubted that. Of course, the Jews can't ever just give a compliment. (laughs) Coming up next, you could be optimistic here, but some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of a blind man also kept this man from dying? They say in a pessimistic sense. You could say certainly he could raise him from the dead, but of course they say it negatively. Could not the one who opened the eyes of the blind also kept this man from dying? They knew he had power, but they too didn't think he had power over the grave. So Jesus, again, verse 38, is deeply moved. He comes to the tomb. This would be very much like the tomb that he would one day be laid in. Cut into a a rock face. Wrapped up and buried in a stone rolled over the cover. So the wild animals would go in and tear apart their flesh. Jesus was deeply moved again. Same word as earlier. Came to the tomb. It was a cave. 
and a stone lay under it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Look what's mentioned here three times. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. This, John is telling us over and over and over again, he's dead. He's really dead. It's been four days. There's an odor. He's dead. The dead man, Lazarus, the dead guy. Remember the one who's dead? He's dead. You get he's dead. In case you missed it, he's dead. Um, this is one of the few instances where I do miss the uh, King James language a, a little bit because this is this this is translated. Some of you some of you know this. Um, she said, "Lord, buy this, buy the or Lord, he stinketh. He's been dead for four days. It's good stuff. That that, that could have been applied to several instances in the man trip, but um, <laughs> I'm not going to name any names. Maybe later." Um, <laughs> Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there's an odor. Martha, even though she just said, you are Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I believe, Lord. He had just told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And Martha, even in her wrestles with her flesh. Lord, you just told me five minutes ago, you are the resurrection and the life. But now I'm telling you, don't open that because he stinks. How often are we like, like Martha? Five minutes ago, God, I know who you are. But you may not want to do that. Don't be so hard on Martha because we've all been there. What we should remember with Martha, though, is when you take your eyes off of Christ and look to the corpse, your faith will waver. How many times are we looking at dead things instead of looking at Christ? How many times are we so focused on the death and the pain and sorrow that is right in front of us that we missed the promises of Christ that we leaned on five minutes ago? And this is why Jesus responds the way he does. Did I not tell you that if you believe you would see the glory of God? Did I not tell you? Where did you tell her, Jesus? Verse 4, she sent a messenger. He told the messenger this, and I promise you, the messenger relayed this message to Martha. The illness, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This will not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, and I will be glorified to it. I can see Jesus like looking this messenger in the eye, like, get that word for word. Because I know Martha's going to forget this in five days. He tells her again in verse 23, your brother will rise again after she had asked about the resurrection, or before she had asked about the resurrection. Verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Didn't I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Just back there. 
before we ran here. Did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? Don't get this, this twisted. This is another mistake that people make. They read this if and assume that Jesus' power is waiting on her faith. As soon as you believe, then I will act. Jesus is not dependent on her belief, but her belief is it, it will depend on whether she sees the miracle or not. If you do not believe, you will not see the glory of God. So they take the stone. Jesus lifts up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. He looks to heaven. This is the appropriate direction. This is the posture of Jesus praying, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. When he's with his disciples, he uses our Father. Because he is speaking of the Father of them all. But in mixed company, he uses Father or my Father. Because he knows that the bystanders do not have God as their Father. Father. He can look to heaven with his eyes open. Be honest, I don't know where this head bowed, eyes closed thing came from. I mean, it's out of, out of, out of reverence. Um, nothing wrong with it necessarily. But every time we see Jesus praying, he is looking to heaven. He's not cowering. He's going before his Father. There's a beautiful picture of this in Hebrews 5, 7. Where the writer of Hebrews says this. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. In his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications to him who was able to save him from death. He goes to God the Father to save Lazarus from death as a precursor for being saved from death himself. And he was heard because of his reverence. Us as well. We are heard because of our reverence. Going before him like children boldly before our Father. But humbly and reverently before Almighty God. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Not, I hope you will hear me. Not, please hear me. I thank you because you have heard me. There's no uncertainties in the prayers of Jesus. There's thanksgiving and perfect trust. And he takes it a step further. Father, I thank you for you have heard me, and I, knew that, and I know that you always hear me. You have heard me because you always hear me. There's continual, unbroken access to the Father through the Son. There is unity here. There's never a busy signal. I know that you always hear me, but say this on account of the people standing around. Now, again, this word, we don't really get it in the English, but this is not a positive word. It's like these people standing around, those who shun me, the, the, the naysayers. I speak to you like this on account of these people. Why? 
that they may believe that you sent me. John's gospel, why does he say what he says? That you may believe. Jesus' ministry, why does he do what he does? That you may believe. Why do we do everything we do? That you may believe. There are no wasted words with Jesus. And they always point back to the Father. Him who he sent. Remember earlier when uh, Martha tells Mary that the teacher is coming. I want you to see an amazing prophecy about the teacher in Isaiah chapter 30. Starting in verse 18. Therefore God waits to be gracious to you. Jesus waited for the appropriate time. And therefore he shall exalt himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. For people shall dwell in Zion in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you a bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. But your eyes shall see your teacher. Look how Jesus brings all these things together perfectly. Those who wait on the Lord, no more weeping. God revealing himself to them as a teacher. I can't make this stuff up. All in one moment. The culmination of all this come together. And when he had said these things, he cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! This is a rare word in the New Testament. This is the only time it's ever applied to Jesus. The other two times of note that this word is applied. When the Jews are crying out, Give us Barabbas and crucify him. It's the same tone. Give us this now. Jesus is calling out, John uses the same word for Jesus to call Lazarus out of the grave that the Jews will use to bring him to the cross. This is a powerful yell. This is a demand. Not to take the thunder out of this, but I want to share this with you guys. As I'm preparing for sermons, I put notes in my phone throughout the week. I'm typing in, give us Barabbas. And iPhone put in, give us bananas. (laughs) I've been laughing about that all week. Like, that is a whole different picture. Give us Barabbas. Give us bananas. It's, just, it's, a, it's a whole different scene. As it's just this angry mob really wants bananas. <laughs> Jesus does not yell, Lazarus, come out, because Lazarus is hard of hearing. Jesus is not yelling at Lazarus because it takes a certain decibel level to raise someone from the grave. Jesus is yelling because he has the authority to do so and he wants everyone around to know that this dead man rises at the sound of my voice. And we had said these things. He cried out with a loud cry, Lazarus, come out. The man who died came out. His hands and his feet are bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with cloth. 
These are technical terms. This is a mummy walking out in front of them, bound head to toe, a cloth over his face. This dead man rises. The culmination of all this. And Jesus could have said, look, look what I've done. Believe it. The, the act was enough in itself. But I love that Jesus' concern for Lazarus is not done yet. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. We may miss this. We may read, read through. This is amazing. Don't, don't get lost here. Lazarus just rose from the dead. This dead man just walked out. Jesus brought him back to life. Yet he's still concerned that this man who's now living is still dressed like a mummy. Help him out. And just like this, when Jesus raised us from the dead, he still attends to our present needs. And he gives our soul new life, but he's also concerned with our external circumstances. I just brought you from the grave. Clean this man up. He, he knows what Lazarus needs, and he knows what, what we need. Resurrection, so many times people think about salvation as this one-time event. That yes, I, I, I trust in Christ, and now I'm made new, and I'm going to stumble my way through life without him until I die. Just like Jesus is cared for, cares for Lazarus' bandages, he cares for your bandages. Jesus redeems our soul first, and then he begins to redeem our surroundings. Lazarus must be out of the grave before the bandages can come off. So many people try to take the bandages off first. You cannot take bandages off a dead man. You must be born again. You must come to new life before we can fix you up on the outside. As the people of God, let's stop trying to fix dead people up on the outside. Let's call them to be raised to new life in Christ. And when he raises them up at the sound of his voice, then we can take the bandages off and lead them away. Kent Hughes says, Jesus is the only one who can turn a funeral into a party. <laughs> this is the gospel. Bad news leads to good news. Weeping to raising. Mourning to rejoicing. Our last verse, and then we're going to close. Look at Psalm chapter 30. Verses 11 and 12. Beautiful Psalm 30 that helps turn this, this picture of mourning into rejoicing. Just, just the last two verses, Psalm 30, 11 and 12. For you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my, glo my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give you thanks forever. Let that be the posture of everyone who has wept over their sin and cried out to the Savior and been given new life. Let me sing your praises forever. Amen? Let's not forget, as we close, that Jesus' delay was not because of his inability, but his delaying led to greater faith and a greater miracle. And often, we must go through difficulty to see the Lord at work. And because he loves us, he knows that our greater seasons of weeping and our greater seasons of mourning and grief give greater evidences to Christ's work. Embrace them. 
Be like our brothers and sisters in the persecuted church and go joyfully to prison. Rejoice in suffering. So when you're going through pain and hurt, put your faith in the one who raises from the dead. And lean into him. Lord, what are you teaching me through this? How are you growing me through this? And in his timing, he will raise you up. And know that in Christ, he will ultimately raise you up from all hurt and all pain and all weeping. And finally, death in the last day because he has promised these things and he is coming soon. This is our identity in Christ. We are people from weeping to raising. Let's pray. Our God, our Father, our Lord, our King, our Creator, our Savior, thank you that you are God of restoration, that you take dead things and bring them to new life, that you reconcile that which is broken and hurting, and you give it joy. For those of us who are in Christ, thank you that you have taken our weeping and turned it into dancing. Thank you that you've taken our mourning and turned it into new life. Thank you that you have raised us from our death in sin. And that you give us life everlasting through the blood of your Son. For those who do not know you, who are still weeping over the pain and hurt that they see, who are still holding on to their deadness, let them hear the voice of the Savior. Come out and live in me. It is in his amazing name we pray. Amen.